welcome to Careers for the Blind. I'll be your host, Harrison Hoyes. And in this interview series, we'll be having conversations with blind and visually impaired people discussing their career paths. We'll have an opportunity to hear about the struggles they had along the way, advice that made them more effective in their careers, and in general, what has helped them lead happy and successful lives. In September 2020, I had a conversation with Sherlock Washington. Sherlock lost his sight early in life over a 10 to 15 year period of time due to retinitis pigmentosa. After graduating from Ryder University with a degree in computer science, he struggled to find employment. But once he did, he was able to demonstrate his ability to perform at a high level in the positions that he held. And from that point moving forward, rose through the ranks as his competition hired him away on several different occasions to come and work for them. Sherlock was so good at his job that he finally came to the realization that he should start his own business. And for the last 20 years, he's been running SW Unlimited as the owner of the company. Sherlock's company sells adaptive and assistive technology for blind and visually impaired people, as well as offering training services for those products. If you want to learn more about Sherlock and his company, visit swunlimited.com. Here's my conversation with Sherlock. Thank you very much for taking some time to, to speak with me and share your story. Can you just start out by telling me a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up? Sure. I can state uh, that I obviously was, uh, well, not obvious, obviously. So <laughs> I was born in Guyana, South America. Uh, and, uh, I came to this country when I was five years old and, um, that was 1970. And well, we had originally, uh, lived in a town, uh, called Patterson, New Jersey. And we were there until about 1979. And from there I had, uh, moved over to Wayne, New Jersey. And I was there in Wayne until I had left to go off to college, which was um, in Lawrenceville. It's Ryder College, or back then it was called Ryder College. Now it's known as Ryder University. Uh, okay. From there, I had, uh, you know, when I graduated, I came back and I moved to uh, Persephone, New Jersey. No, no, actually, that's not correct. I went back and moved back home for about five or six months or so. Uh, got my first job uh, in Rockaway, New Jersey, and I worked there for about, I'd say, a year, a little after, a little over a year. Then I was offered another opportunity where I then moved from Wayne to Parsippany, and I worked for a company called uh, Korea Electronics or Computer Concepts. They had two names at that point, and I worked there uh, for about a couple of years. Then I took a job in Butler, New Jersey. And from Butler, I had taken, I had given another job opportunity to work in Edison, New Jersey for a company called Dataflex Corporation. And from there, I had moved down to Edison from Butler. And I don't think I may have mentioned that I moved from uh, Parsippany to Butler and then from Butler down to Edison, and then from Edison here to uh, Old Bridge, Matawan area where I live now. And that's pretty much that uh, the lengthy timeline. 
Okay. I think I just basically gave you kind of like the, the brief outline and get any in-depth details, but if we need some details, we'll be more than sure to make sure we give those to you. All right. So can we go back a little bit? Let's talk about um, if you can tell me when did you have any issues with your eyesight during your okay, life? Cool. Uh, appreciate that. Okay. Now I was quite, uh, I, I knew that there was always something going on with my eyes because I was unable to uh, see very well when it started getting later outside, like at nighttime. Mm -hmm. So when it started to get uh, dusk, you know, it was always the less light I had, uh, the worse I was able to see. Well, when I had moved to the United States, um, I guess when I was in first grade, then they said, you know what, we need to, to, to get your eyes checked because I wasn't able to see things clearly on the board unless I was sitting really in the front row of the classroom. So they went and they checked my eyes and that's when I actually um, was diagnosed with a condition called RP, retinitis pigmentosa. Mm -hmm. And after being diagnosed with this, I was then introduced to the New Jersey Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired here. And uh, from there, um, they came in, or came out, I should say, and they had a, a school that they wanted me to uh, in, enroll in, um, which was a school where they had something called a sight-saving class. And uh, I was there it was like a little little house on the prairie type situation they had okay. all various grades in one classroom the kids in that town of Patterson, at that point in time anybody who was visually impaired went to this school and was you know obviously enrolled in this classroom where we would learn um you know various subjects and then we would be able to be given you know specialized uh, Technology. I can't even say technology because really there was not a lot of technology back then, but they were able to enlarge books for us. Um, I used a high intensity lamp that remember I said the more light that I had, the better off I could see. And I had some really thick reading glasses. So that's how I would have been able to read anything that was shown to me or do any math assignments or writing assignments. That's how I would be doing it under that high intensity lamp. Okay. Um, and I was there from, I guess, maybe the second grade up until the eighth grade. And um, the other thing that they did give to me there, I remember now getting a cassette recorder and they had the first talking calculator um, back then as well that they had given me as well to use. So uh, those were some of the, the tools and the devices that I was able to use at that point. And uh, I went for a half a year um, to Kennedy High School. And from Kennedy High School is when we had moved to Wayne. So it was after my uh, half of my freshman year, then, then the family had moved over to uh, Wayne, New Jersey. And from there, they kind of give the same thing. We then got introduced to the, um, the library for the blind and handicapped. Um, and now I think they call it, um, what is it, the Learning Ally? And then I was able to get a lot of my books, uh, my textbooks on tape from, from, from that uh, service. And I was also uh, able to use a CCTV. And uh, I'm sure for some of them or some folks who don't know what that is, it is a device where you can take a document, place it underneath a camera that it would project 
what was on the, the camera onto a CRT or, or, or a monitor. And I was able at that point to transpose from black letters to white background to white letters on a black background. So that's what really worked very well for me. So it's kind of like your traditional kind of blackboard and the white lettering had really stood out. And of course, at this point, having this device, I was then able to magnify to the size in which I needed to do my assignments and my work and that type of thing. Okay. And that's how we were able to, to, to work that all out. And of course, having readers as well, they had a, uh, a teacher, her name is Doris Brouch. She was a, a supplemental uh, teacher. So one period of the day, I would go and sit with her and she would help read for me for any assignments that I would have. And that's how we would more or less get some of the work done that we need to get done. Okay. All right. You're definitely on the uh, somewhat earlier side for retinitis pigmentosa. I've been speaking with people. Some people weren't affected until their forties and then some people infected, you know, uh, very early, like, like yourself. Um, when you went to university, were you using that same technology? As yes. I was using the same technology, the CCTV. I was using uh, back then a typewriter for some of you who are uh, a lot younger. You may not know well, what's this, what is this type? What's he talking about? Typewriter. Yes, it was uh, first I received a manual typewriter. And then uh, when I went to college, I received a electric typewriter. Um, I did learn to type very early. Um, I guess it was that uh, sight-saving class that I mentioned in school two in Patterson. Um, we had typing every day, so we were using these big IBM typewriters back in the back at that time. And these, you had to put a lot of force and pressure on the keys and able to imprint on the paper. So that's what I was doing. And when I was in college, even when you had an electric typewriter. And the only way that you can correct the mistake was to basically do that same mistake over again. You couldn't roll the paper out and then do a white out and roll it back because you'd never be on the same line or space. So it was just, there were so many different challenges as opposed to what there is today where everything is, uh, you know, you're using a Word document, you have a computer where you can just make your edits and changes and it's effortless. But back then it was uh, extremely challenging. So you try, when you're typing up a term paper or doing whatever you needed to do is to not make a mistake. And I can't say that I've ever escaped not making a mistake or typing a whole page over again because <laughs> the mistake was made in the middle of the paper and then you'd have to go and do all that work all over again. Um, we would have, if we need to have a couple copies, we'd have um, uh, this type of material. It was, uh, I don't even know what the name of it, maybe you might know what- Carbon paper. Carbon, thank you. Uh, so if you say carbon paper to people now, they probably say, what, what's that? Other than you buy or find carbon paper now? That's the question. So we'd have, if you're doing two copies, you'd have one piece of carbon paper between. If you're doing three copies, you'd have two pieces of carbon tape paper to separate the pages. And you'd have to be striking very hard on that typewriter to make sure that you go through all those copies to make sure it came out. So uh, that's, that's, that's the old school way of doing things. And that's what we had to do. Um, at least for the assignments. And I had to find readers when I was in college. So it was just, and one of the things that I did do was when I was in a particular course, I had approached the professor, explained to them, obviously up front as to what was going on with my vision. 
and to say to him if he might be able to make some type of an announcement to the class and if anybody was interested in you know maybe a part-time opportunity and a study partner um that uh you know they could obviously see me at the end of the class and uh, he would go through and you know they kind of help with that process by looking at everybody's notes and if they felt that that person kind of captured everything that they were doing that would be a good person for me to to work alongside so that worked out pretty well except for when you got to the higher level classes and you didn't have so many people that were taking the same course as you or people maybe not willing to volunteer or they had other things on their plate you have to go to the office of uh, school school or I guess the office of disability services and from there trying to see if they may be able to find a reader or, or helping you out or just go to the department specifically and talk to the uh, whoever the director was at the department and see if they might have been able to find a student that would be able to work with us and getting some of the work accomplished or finished and that's how we would more or less find the people that uh, we needed getting okay. things done. All right. That, yes. Having somebody, a reader, or you need some assistance when you're in college, you can't do everything hundred percent on your own. That's good that they were helping you through that process. That's really good to hear. Yeah, it was great. Um, the other thing is too, you have to be very proactive because sometimes if you're a little bit, uh, you know, apprehensive or, or shy and never wanting to advocate really truly to yourself, then obviously things got, out of hand and then you kind of pay the price at the end of the semester so you always wanted to make sure you jumped on this stuff very early okay okay any any other advice for blind or visually impaired people in college that uh that you have i think that uh, the primary thing that you need to to know is you know you're pretty much on your own when you're in college it's not like when you're in any of the allure um you know if you're in high school or elementary when you're back home where you know, all these things are kind of provided and they kind of have an IEP and work you through it, you have to be more proactive on your own. So I'm just saying that you know, we need to start being as proactive as we possibly can as early as we can to get those skills sharpened. So when we do get out there to a college campus or a work environment, we are definitely capable of speaking out and making sure that we get those things that we're needed so we can be 100% efficient at whatever we're looking to do. Great, great. Were you thinking about what kind of career path you were going to have when you were in college? What was your what was your major, and what would you be doing after college? Oh, that's good. A good good question, Harrison. Um, the first thing was in high school. That was one of the decisions that I had to to make. Really, junior year, everybody is going out and seeing about what they wanted to do, and and I was thinking at my point in time, well, what can a blind or visually impaired person do that would give them gainful employment and uh it was something that uh you know somebody else may have been out there so they had had something called a resource center in uh, wayne hills high school and in this resource center they remember her name was mrs marshall i can never forget her she was just a an awesome lady she took the time and we did so many different types of aptitude tests and it came back that i was very good with mathematics and english and they had said you know what well um these careers would basically be advantageous for for you if you're looking at the math field or english field and one of the things that they said was computer and computer science and back in 1982 you know not a lot of people really were doing a lot with the computer industry but when we had 
looked around for different schools. Um, we then saw that they said that this field would have been wide open for till the year 2040. I said, wow, if it's open and wide open, that means that job opportunities might be abound there. It might be get tons of opportunity if I went down this path. I love res, you know, resolving things. I love you know, math. I loved figuring things out. And then, uh, you know, I was very fascinated by how they were even getting the answers to some of the questions that I had and doing these aptitude tests. And they had a very basic computer back then. It was the type of a computer that didn't even have a video display on the computer. It was just a keyboard that looked like it had massive, massive amounts of keys on it. And it would then feed paper through this machine. It'd be like a nine pin or 24 pin, uh, you know, matrix printers, they would call it, but it was hooked up to this thing. And that's how they were able to type out. So when we had said, you know what, I would like to pursue a field, uh, this field of computer science, what had then happened was they had put some information in the computer and it said, okay, here are some of the schools that would be good for computer science. And one was Rutgers, the other one was Keene, and then we had Ryder. And it's just like the guy with the three bears, right? You had to go to each one. Um, I did apply to each one and I was accepted to each one of them. But then the other test is to go and see which one would kind of really be a best or a good fit, meaning that they would give you the kind of supports in which you needed, as well as not only the support you needed, but you know the campus had to be somewhat navigable, right? You need to be able to get from your dorm to your dining facilities, from from, from dining facilities to um, the, the, the student center or from the student center to the main uh, buildings of the classroom. So when I went to Rutgers and you're saying, well, you need to take, you're going to need to take a bus to get you from point A to point B for the different classes. And these classrooms were anywhere from like maybe 30, 40, 50 kids to several few hundred kids in a class. And I just felt that that was truly way, way overwhelming because then you kind of lose your own um, individuality in a sense. You become just a number. And I wanted to have a place where I would feel like it was more high school, maybe 20, 30 students to the classroom. And then you're able to then have a, a nice dialogue or rapport with the professor or the teacher and that kind of thing. So Rutgers was out. Keene, the college campus for me, um, was too much like in the city. Uh, and when I went to Ryder, which was right outside of Princeton and Lawrenceville, right next door on 206, this school had a great layout in the campus. Uh, the classroom size was absolutely ideal. And uh, when I had gone to speak with the director of the computer science department uh, on a visit that I'd made prior to, you know, going to the school, he had said, look, you know, um, they're doing so many different uh, things now with technology. Uh, there are systems that will be, you know, working with or will be coming onto campus that will have, you know, speech output. And, and for me as a kid that, that had not been exposed to anything other than this uh, computer that I had mentioned earlier, which was located in this resource room, um, that was usually a very big thing. And one of the first things that I did see when I was sitting with that gentleman in his office 
he had a monochrome monitor. And uh, the monochrome is like an amber type color uh, for the background and white letters. And he said, look, we're going to try something right now. And mind you, I never really worked with a computer before, and, and especially having a monitor there. And he was able to type two characters on the screen, and he enlarged it. That was the first time that I saw this guy was a programmer, obviously, and he was able to enlarge these two letters, and it was H-I for high. And I was, for me, that was huge. That was like, oh, my goodness, what kind of a field is this going to be? And I'm able to basically see these two. And I was just so blown away. I'm like, this is where I'm going to come. And so said, so done. And the fall of uh, uh, 20, I'm sorry, 1983 is when I stepped onto the campus as a full-time writer student. Oh, that's great. That's great. I also chose to go to a smaller school because I, 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 I knew I wasn't going to drive. Right. I wanted something that was going to be walkable. Everything mm -hmm. needed to be, you know, you'd be able to, like you said, navigate the campus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I chose, I chose the same thing. That's, that's interesting. Well, I think that was very important for us, you know, because you, you want that independence. And of course, if you have to rely on transportation, that means that that's less that's going to be under your control, right? People sometimes come in late. Buses sometimes don't show up. People yeah. that you decide to work with sometimes may be sick, but you still need to do what you need to do. So I figured if I'm going to stay on campus, one of the reasons for going off to school and not commuting back and forth to school was so that if there was a uh, particular schedule that I had, you know, I knew exactly when I left my dorm to go to eat the, the dining facility and then to get to the classroom and everything else. I was doing that completely on my own. So that for me was absolutely huge and it gave me a great sense of independence. Okay. Were you traveling with a cane at that point? You know what? Uh, it's an interesting question because, you know, I know that when I was in high school, I was not a cane user because I still felt that I had some pretty usable vision. Um, the only thing that, and this is what they had done for me when I was in high school, because navigating, you know, the building was not the problem. The problem were the other students that were coming out at the same time that I was coming out, trying to get to my locker, picking up my books, and then trying to get to the other class, doing it in a timely manner because they only gave us like four minutes or so. Mm -hmm. So what they worked out for me, which I thought was great with your guidance counselor, his name was Mr. Ravo. And Mr. Ravo was extremely helpful. And what he said was, look, um, what we're going to do is we're going to get you know, a special pass for you. So in your class, you can leave four minutes before the bell. So if I left four minutes before the bell, what was that meaning? That meant an empty hallway, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe you may have some students maybe moving around, coming back and forth from the, you know, from the, you know, men's room or ladies' room or whatever the case is. But it was a vi very wide open um, hallway. So if I needed to go from one side of the building or to the other side, I had no obstacles, none of that stuff that I needed to consider. So I wasn't using a cane then. When I knew that it was time to start using a cane was, and you know, anytime when somebody is uh, that age, 14, 18, nobody wants to stand out. You know that, Harrison. Nobody yeah. wants to basically be different. I know that anybody's blind and visually impaired. We want to always, you know, blend in and, and, and fit in with everybody else. And we felt, and at that point in time, having a cane would definitely defeat that purpose. And especially when you're a kid, you don't want, you're already standing out already because you have this vision loss. And then you're now really emphasizing it by walking around with the cane. And then what you're really apprehensive about are people saying, 
oh, look at the blind kid or something along those lines. You know, it's, it's nothing different that we hear today about kids teasing other kids and things along those lines. So I didn't really want to be noticed in that way. So I didn't use the cane. So I went to Great Adventure, which was probably one of my junior, senior years. And uh, we went to Great Adventure. And as I said, you know, when it started to get dusk and start the sun started to go down, that was when I, when I started to really experience a lot of difficulties uh, mobility-wise and getting around. So we went to Great Adventure. We left about mm, summertime. We must have left maybe 7, 8 o'clock in the morning, got there. They opened up the park at nah, 10 o'clock having a phenomenal time and a blast the whole entire time, following up with my friends that I was with. And they knew that something was wrong with my vision, but they didn't know how much vision I really had when I didn't have, right? Because normally I would be home by dusk if I was home, right? So now mm -hmm. I thought that we we're going to be leaving at a reasonable time that I can just, you know, wow, you know, manage all day long. And then after I would get home before, it got, before the sun went down, you know, I was like a reverse vampire. <laughs> so um then we were there in the park and great adventure they used to always have fireworks they probably still do at you know eight o'clock nine o'clock at night because that's when it gets dark where they people could really enjoy the fireworks right but for me that was not a good thing and when they said they wanted to stay i was then very 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 apprehensive very nervous and I'm walking around this park and I'm trying to, you know, with the limited vision I did have, my friend was wearing a white t-shirt. I would try to focus on that t-shirt, wherever that went, I would just kind of follow it. There's a lot of people in the park. You're saying you're bumping into somebody. You're saying, excuse me, pardon me, but everybody's doing that. So you're not really standing out. The thing that made me stand out was I bumped into something or someone and I turned around and I said, oh, excuse me. So then my friend turns around and says, why are you saying excuse me? I said, I just bumped into that person. He said, that wasn't a person, it was a tree. And I said, oh, those trees have feelings too. <laughs> <laughs> so, but for that point in time, you felt very silly, right? Yeah. And that's when I knew, you know what? Maybe it's going to be best for me to use a cane. And that's a huge admission to say that you're going to now have to rely or resort to using a tool or a device to make you stand out. I mean, prior to this, I'm telling you, if I walk into a class or I walk into someone's office and they say, have a seat over there. Now, first thing, Harrison, you know, when somebody says, have a seat over there, where is over there? What does that mean? Yeah. So therefore I would always say, oh, no, 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 no worries. I, I, you know, I was sitting all this time and I just felt that I would be okay standing. I'm the only one standing and everybody else is sitting down. So that you make yourself really stand out instead of saying, can you please direct me to where I can sit down. I mean, as a kid, you know, some of these things that you'd have hangups about that you wouldn't feel it, you'd have hangups over and they would be huge to you, but it would have been effortless for somebody else to say, oh, wow, you know, if you walked in with a king, everybody's like, this guy can't see, so let's just direct him to a chair, right? But right. that's why I'm saying when I started using that king, a lot of stress was then lifted off of my shoulders. Right. Because I didn't have to go through the story. I remember when I was uh, uh, a freshman in, 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 for the first half of the year in uh, Kennedy High School. And that was a huge, huge building, four different wings and getting they had like three or four floors. And to get from one place to the next, you know, it was it was a challenge. And if you're even I remember this one kid 
where I had said to him, no, no, um, you know, because he said, hey, you know, we need to get ready for jam and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, people are saying hi to you. And then, you know, if you don't see them, they're thinking that you're being extremely rude to them because you don't acknowledge that they're talking to you. But I didn't know it was talking to me. So this one kid, I did say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I don't see very well. And that's why I wasn't able to, you know, acknowledge you, you know, saying hi or waving or whatever the case is. He said, really? He says, you, you don't look like you're blind. Then the first thing is then you get everybody becomes a professional ophthalmologist and optometrist. They start throwing up <laughs> fingers. And then they like, well, how many fingers do I have up? Now, this is something you always went through each and every time. And I was just so fed up and done with it, right? So I said, like, okay, we have to go through playing the game. So, of course, they would throw some fingers up. I, at this point in time, okay, three. That's right, you're right. And I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> one, I'm guessing, right? Then I'm like, two. No, that's only one. So you have to play this game with them uh, either to prove that you said what you said and you meant that you're someone who was blind and you showed them that you weren't able to see. And it's like, then you would start to hear people when you're walking, oh, that guy's blind or that guy's a, and it was a kid you never wanted to hear somebody talking about you or, or making references to you. But as I said, uh, when I finally embrace using the cane, it relieved a lot of stress. I didn't have to worry about taking an eye exam all the time. I didn't have to worry about bumping into a garbage can and saying, excuse me, or apologizing to a tree. Um, so that is one people just don't, but you know, it doesn't happen before it's time. What I mean by that is when you're a young person, no matter what I say to you, Harrison, and no matter what is being said to someone who's blind and visually impaired, they have to come to that realization on its own. You can't force a kid to use a device or to use a cane, even if it's going to be something that's going to be helpful to them, unless they're ready to take that on. Because sometimes they would take the cane, they'd forget that it was at home, they left it someplace else, they would just refuse to use this device. So right. I came to that realization, as I said, when this whole thing transpiring but then what a huge relief i'm blind i can't do anything about it this is just how god had made me and you know people would either like me or they will dislike me but then again people are cited and they're liked or disliked it doesn't make yeah. a difference so i felt that even if someone had a disability uh if if people knew if they were seeing not seeing and if they gravitate to that person then they're a genuine friend person and if they felt that they couldn't handle having a friend that had a disability or, or vision loss, then guess what? It's their loss, not my loss. Yep. When you moved on to from college and on to your first few jobs, what were those interviews like? And what was that process like of getting those jobs? Well, first off, you, you don't know what the right or wrong way is in trying to secure an interview. So after graduating college, I was given, you know, I was, I was sent, I sent out so many different resumes all over the place to so many different companies uh, for me to be, you know, working with statistics or doing whatever I did with my degree. And I kept on getting a lot of these rejection letters. And it wasn't a rejection letter because they knew I was blind and visually impaired. I really didn't have very much on my resume that kind of had that stand out. So it was just whatever they reviewed and whatever they saw. 
And, uh, you know, I, I was very active in sports. So I had, uh, you know, a member of ABA and J Association for Blind Athletes of New Jersey, a uh, member of USABA, United States Association for Blind Athletes, whatever. So you're putting all these things down there and you, and you figured that if you put them there, that maybe somebody might be able to figure it out, especially when they say gold medal in, you know, 100 meter dash or gold medal in the high jump or something like that, that you know, some of the uh you know accomplishments back then to throw on a resume so when you, you you do that you figure that some people would kind of grasp it but believe it or not harrison that's not what a lot of people did uh, i remember getting a phone call after they received my resume and after they called they said look we got your resume we feel that you certainly have the um the, the qualities in which we're looking for and I would love uh, to have uh, you come in and speak with a few members of our team and, and, and see where it goes from there. Well, I felt at that point for the first time, I needed to let them know that I was someone who was blind. So talking to this guy on the phone and when he was saying this to me, I said, yes, but I want to make sure that I'm completely candid with you and to let you know that I'm someone who's blind. All of a sudden, the other end of the phone goes dead, Harris. And as it goes dead, I'm like, wait a minute, um, hello? Then I hear, yeah, 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 Sherlock, yeah, we're still, I'm still here. Thanks um, very much for sharing that. And as I said, you know, there's going to be several folks that will be interviewing you when, when, when you come in. So what I would like to do is just to make sure that we can coordinate with the rest of the team. And then uh, I'll give you a call back and we can discuss some dates. Well, we hang up from that phone call. And do you think I got a call back? And the answer is no. Yeah, right. Never get back, right? right? And I think we scared them off by the blind word, scared them. So they had run for the hills. So I said, okay, Harrison, if that's what they are afraid of, I won't mention it. So I did get another call. Same type of scenario came up. Great, Sherlock, you seem like you have all the qualifications. We'd love to have you come in. And we'd love to sit, have you sit down and speak to us. Sherlock says nothing. Okay, great. Tell me the day and time, and I will be there. So now it comes for the day of the interview. I get there probably 15 minutes, a half an hour early, speak to the receptionist. I walk in, and, 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 and uh, I said, yeah, I'm here to, hear, to see such and such. And they're like, oh, okay, no problem. Um, we will get them for you. So now I'm sitting down and waiting, and the guy comes out, and I stand up and drop my cane out. And, hey, my name is Sherlock, ready to reach out and shake his hand. He's like, oh, it's so nice to meet you, Sherlock. Uh, you didn't mention that you were um, uh, visually challenged. Uh, you're visually – no, that I'm blind? Yeah, 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 blind, yeah. Uh, would you be able to – follow me or come with me or, 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 you know, do I have to do something? And I said, no, 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 not nothing at all. I just, uh, you know, I'll just follow you. We'll talk and we'll just get to your office. So we get into his office, sit down. He's behind his desk. I'm sitting in a chair in front of him. And this is how the interview kind of went. So Sherlock, uh, how would you get here every day? Mm. I'm like, myself, hmm, how did Sherlock get here today? Right. Then they're asking me questions like, uh, well, you know, you know, here, you know, sometimes people leave their, their chairs pulled out from from and, and leave it in the aisle, or or we may have, uh, you know, a file cabinet open or blah blah, blah and uh, that might be a little bit of a challenge for you. Oh, by the way, we have stairs here. And I'm thinking, wow, just imagine, 
they've got stairs here, right? <laughs> so that would be a huge challenge for me to be able to lift my leg up to go up and down stairs when I've been climbing stairs since birth, right? So yeah. those are some of the things that have, so I said to myself, you know what, if they're more primarily focused on how am I going to do this or how am I going to get to the restroom or there's stairs here or some people are going to leave their chairs out in the aisle and stuff like that. I mean, this doesn't seem like it's going to be a very friendly environment, not because of those things, but because of what their mindset is as to what a blind person is capable of doing and how they can really contribute to the team and to make that company stronger. So I gave that one a pass and uh, I joined this job club that the New Jersey Commission for the Blind had at the time. And there was a person that was running the job club. Her name is Gloria Lieberstein. And Gloria, awesome individual. She said, look, you know what? There's definitely issues here when it comes to employment for those with vision loss. So we need to prepare our clients as well as making sure that we can invite various companies to have a presence on this job club and maybe we might be able to see some synergy there and, and it may give the individuals the opportunity to, to do mock interviews as to what they would have to do if they were to go and sit in with someone or it, it gives that person maybe some exposure that somebody may be able to showcase what they're able to do and maybe somebody might offer them a job, right? Well, it just so happens on that job in the job club and on the board, this is a person that owned a computer company. Uh, his name was Joe Britton. I'll never forget this guy because he says, look, I have a computer company in Rockaway. It was called BIOS International. And he said, uh, but I'm interested in having a few of the members of this job club maybe come to work for us. Uh, it would be specifically doing telemarketing as well as, you know, with the telemarketing field, you're talking about also uh, providing computer equipment, parts, and peripherals to the clients in which we have. So when he said telemarketing, oh, oh, oh man, Harrison, I was like, oh, my goodness, this is not good. Because I don't feel that I would certainly be a good telemarketing person. I mean, you know, I've been so accustomed to all this rejection of people saying, no, 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 it's okay. No, we're not interested in having you come or whatever. And I said, just imagine sitting for an eight-hour day and picking up the phone and people slamming the phone down. Don't call here anymore. I don't want to, you know, blah, blah, I don't need anything. So you're going to be dealing with a whole lot of rejection from Monday through Friday, right? Right. So I said, all right. Okay, well, you know what? There's no other opportunities or offerings that I have right now. It is a computer company. I have a degree in computer science. And if this is the opportunity or the window that may be open or the door that may be open, I got to slide through. So I took the opportunity, went to work for these guys. I was living in, in Wayne at the time, and I was finishing college, as I said, and I had to commute. Um, it was probably 45 minutes or so straight if you're driving a car to get over to Rockaway. And if you were taking transportation, forget about it. It'd probably take you several hours to make that journey to get all the way up there. Well, I was uh, fortunate that I was able to hire someone at the time to get me back and forth. But one of the things that they had me doing was they said, Sherlock, look, for this job, you're going to be doing telemarketing. And we have some clients that we used to do business with, but for some reason, 
they had decided that they're not going to be buying from us anymore. So we're going to give you this list of names and we'd like you to call on these individuals and see if you can get them to come back and start buying from us again. And I'm like, oh boy, if there's not anything more difficult, that is the one of the most difficult parts is trying after you burn somebody one time is trying to come back and saying, hey, you know, things are not what they once were. Please, if you give me the opportunity, I guarantee you that, you know, I won't let you down. Well, I used to wear people down, Harrison. I would call, hey, just wanted to find out if you needed something. I know you bought some keyboards in the past, and I know you have a computer company, and you're putting computers together. You may need some keyboards, or you may need some motherboards, or you may need some floppy disk drive, or you may need some memory, or whatever the case is, or monitors, whatever you need. I'm here to help you out. And I remember some of the, several people, Sherlock, you are relentless. So this is what we're going to do. I'm going to try this out and see how it works out. So boom, they ask. I was able to provide what they needed. And believe it or not, about a year or so after getting that job, I got 80% of those people to come back and buy from those from that company again. Wow. So it was really pretty cool because then I said, well, you know what? we all have a calling and I didn't know what that calling was going to be, but obviously the computer talking to people, um, giving them or getting them what they needed and providing them a, a service. And the beauty of it was Harrison, I over a telephone, are you able to distinguish if somebody is sighted or blind? Not at all. And that's why it was the best job. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That's great. So therefore, it was never the rejection part was because they saw, oh, this blind guy. Why am I giving him a chance? He's blind. He's blind. You know what I'm saying? That was not something that was a key. They just knew that, hey, if we give him an opportunity, he gets us what we need. You know what? We either get it, we don't get it. But we were able to, to, to uh, like I said, get 80% of those people back purchasing stuff from them. That's great. And that led to another interesting piece because uh, while I was there, I had built or develop relationships with all these people. And there was a company that was in uh, Parsippany and the gentleman, uh, his name was uh, Juan Correa. And he was calling me for computer components and parts for his company. And he said, Sherlock, you know what? I need a guy like you to come to work for me. And I said, oh, that'd be great, Juan. And thanks for the compliment. But, you know, I'm here and blah, blah, blah. He said, whatever you're getting, whatever they're paying you now, I'll pay you more. I said, really? So I said, so, so when do I start? <laughs> so he says to me, well, you, you could come in and blah, blah. So I went in sight unseen, which was great. He already hired me on the phone. And then I showed up for work the very first day. He okay. Said, Are you kidding me? You mean this whole time that I was talking to you, you were someone who was blind and well, whatever you need, we're going to do the same thing for you here that they did for you over there. So okay. that blindness was no longer a factor, right? It was yeah. then not here. The blind guy's name is Sherlock, but now Sherlock so happens to be blind because you always want to put the person before the disability at any time place. So that allowed me by working over the phone and being able to build up those relationships and the trust. And that's how I was able to be able to, to break that chain that, you know, oh, boy, this guy's blind. What can he do for us? They already knew what I could do for them because I was doing it for them on the other end of the telephone before coming to work for him. And believe me, 
uh, Harrison, that didn't happen to me just one time. It happened to me about four times before I even started my company. I never had, after that first invitation to say, hey, we'd like you to come and work for us. We'll pay you more. That happened to me one, two, three, like I said, four different times where I didn't look for a job. They were looking for me to come to work for them because they saw what I was able to do for them. Wow. They were my clients. So that's that's one of the things that I have to share. That's fantastic. Absolutely. And I know for a lot of people too, and that's why I always, when I speak with folks, I tell them, look, if you're going to go after a particular uh, field and you just have to keep one thing in mind, whatever you decide to do, be the best that you can be. Whatever tools that you need to do the job, learn those tools, learn what you need to learn and be very proficient at it. Once you become proficient at anything, people will see that you do stand out and you won't have to look for them. They'll be looking for you. Yeah, that's very powerful. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. No worries. Let's talk about, you briefly mentioned before you started your company. So you were working for all these other companies and then what was it that made you decide to start your own company? Okay, great question. I'd gone and, uh, well, like I said, I um, when I said to you earlier that when an individual, um, you know, they are known for what their capability is rather than their disability and their capabilities outweigh those disabilities, I was uh, very fortunate because I made a lot of friends on my journey. And I remember one young man, when I worked up in Butler, um, his name was John Post. And John said, look, you know what? Uh, I was given an interview with this large computer company down in Edison. And they, uh, if, 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 I'll just keep you in mind. If I hear of any opening or an opportunity, we're gonna get you out of here. You're gonna basically get another opportunity. So this guy who was a friend of mine was true to his word. While he was there for maybe three months, four months or whatever the case, he found out that they felt very strongly hiring from individuals that were referrals from folks that were already working for them. So it could be a friend, a, a met, you know, somebody that they knew and they'd give a referral and they would also get a little, you know, a uh, finder's fee, uh, you know, a stipend bonus, whatever the case is for, for bringing good people onto the company. So one day he approached the CEO, his name was Rick Rose, of this company called Dataflex. And he said, look, I've got a friend of mine that is an awesome salesperson. And I know he'd be great for this particular environment. And he happens to be blind. He says, really? He said, uh, what's his name? He says, his name is Sherlock. He said, look, anybody with the name of Sherlock, I definitely have to meet. So <laughs> that's how I got my first conversation to talk to the CEO of this company called Dataflex. And I was working for a company at that point in time where um, it was called Sabrock Computer Services. That was the one that was in Butler. And um, I had gone from that to uh, go down to Edison at this point in time for this interview. So I spoke with the CEO, Rick Rose, by the way, for about 45 minutes. And I was just giving him a little bit of a background on me as to the things that I was able to do for all these other companies in the past. And uh, he said, wow, that's 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 pretty, pretty impressive. And, and you know what? I would love for you to come in and speak to our sales manager. His name was Michael Freilich. 
so the the day came where I went down for the interview. Uh, got there obviously, like I said, fifteen half an hour, fifteen minutes earlier than my scheduled time to be there. And uh, I got in and I sat down with Rick Rose and Michael Freilich and and they started shooting me with all kinds of different questions, right? How long have I been in sales? Blah blah blah. This and that. What makes you stand out? And one of the questions that I remember, never forgot this. So, what would you give yourself uh, for you know being a salesperson? Um, for the score of one to ten, what would you say that your score would be as a salesperson? I said, oh man, this is one of these trick questions, right? So I said, okay, well, um, I think that I would certainly be an eight. So I figured we'd move on to the next question, but that was not the case. He says, um. Why would you think that you were an eight? And I said, I had to come up with a, a good uh, reason as to why I gave an eight, right? So I said, um, because I feel that everyone should always leave room for improvement. We can't all know every single thing. So I didn't want to say, again, I didn't want to say six, and I didn't want to say 10, but I felt eight was just a good number just to throw in the middle. And when he <laughs> asked that question, and when I gave him that answer, the response right after that was, you're hired. What would you like to make? <laughs> and I'm like, another trick question. <laughs> what do I want to make? And at that time, I think back in the uh, early 90s, I was probably getting like maybe 25, 30 grand. So I just threw up a number, $40,000. He says, done. <laughs> And I said, you're such an idiot, Sherlock. He could have probably said 60 or 70, and he would have given it to you. But he said, that's just your base salary. You'll be getting commissioned and everything else. We're going to take really good care of you. So I came in as a sales rep for the company, and I headed up a division because I was dealing with um, – computer components, parts, and peripherals. And I did a lot of stuff with used computer component parts and peripherals. Now, Dataflex at the time was in all these major corporate uh, entities. You're talking about uh, all the different um, pharmaceutical companies. If you're talking about the Bristol-Myers Squibb or your Johnson & Johnson, or any, we had all the major pharmaceutical companies that we had accounts with and what they would dataflex would do was to sell them new computer equipment uh parts peripherals components so while we sold the new equipment what my company then did was hey sherlock we've got x amount of devices that they are looking to get rid of and that's how i started up the division over there of dataflex doing the aftermarket for them because I had that experience, any company that we worked for, when we sold in new equipment, we would offer them a value for their older computer equipment where they can take that value and either put towards the purchase of their new equipment or just keep as a credit. And whenever they were looking for services or anything else, they would be able to utilize that. So that was a huge, huge success for Dataflex. And I had a team of, of, of great guys that worked with me and for me, right? As our little separate little division. And uh, we were doing some really good numbers for this company. And then they got bought out by GE um, Capital IT Solutions. And from there, I had worked with GE Capital IT Solutions doing sales for 
Microsoft um, certifications. I really didn't like training or sales in, in the ability to have people come in to do training and that kind of thing. So I wanted to stick to what I knew when the company got sold. And there was a gentleman that worked for the company. His name was uh, Tom Beer, and he'd gone off. He was another sales rep, and he started a company called YBC, Yesterday's Business Computers, with uh, two other partners of his. Um, and these guys owned a, a, a furniture and a, not only a furniture place, but it was also a place that did a lot of office supplies and equipment and that kind of thing. Um, and that company was called Village Office Supply. So he partnered up with these two guys to start, to start this new company. And he says, look, the person that you certainly want to talk to that will be great at this is a guy named Sherlock Washington, who is uh, working at this GE Capital IT Solutions. But then when, when, when Tom says, look, I want you to talk to my partners. I think that you'd be great coming. And I'm like, well, no, Tom, I, I really feel that, you know, things are going well for me over here. He said, Sherlock, well, it won't hurt just to basically hear him out. I said, okay. So one day we had um, set up a time where um, I think it was Rob Mallon, one of the owners of Village Office Supply, they come out to me. They took me to lunch. And one of the first things we we're having lunch, he's like, look, this is what our vision is. And we wanna, you know, we have quite a bit, quite a few accounts that we are in right now selling our office supplies and furniture and all this other stuff but we want to basically have something where we can help them with their computer equipment. And we feel that you would be a wonderful resource to do that with us. And uh, we make you the director of our remarketing division. Um, we would pay you X amount of dollars. We would pay you a, we give you a commission and bonus. And we'll also provide a driver to pick you up every day, bring you to work, and bring you home. So what do you think the answer was that, Mr. Harris? What do you think? <laughs> a definite yes. Without question, as quickly as I could possibly could. <laughs> so I, I had gone and I started working for them and everything worked out great for about a year, a year and a half, almost two years. And then they were gonna go in a different direction. And the direction that they were going is they said they were not gonna be doing much with the aftermarket business at all. They didn't feel that that was going to be what their focus was gonna do. They were gonna really rely more or less on employee buyback programs and some other things. So we weren't gonna be utilized. So at that point I picked up the phone and I called several other um, companies that I had been doing business with for quite some time. And um, several of these guys, when they found out that, that, that I would be you know, available, I got like three or four offers and, wow. everybody, and everybody else was telling me, Sherlock, what, what are you doing going to work for other people when you could do this for yourself? Now, here's another uh, revelation too. When somebody says to you, oh, you go ahead and do it yourself. When you're working for someone, Harrison, what happens is obviously every two weeks, what happens? You're getting a paycheck. Right. So if, things are rocky, sad, but bad. you know that you have a definite paycheck coming in every two weeks that you can do whatever you need. If it's to pay rent, pay a mortgage, you know, uh, pay your bills, do whatever you need to do. You know that you can rely on that. But when you are working for yourself, that's not the case. You don't know from one day to the next what opportunities may present themselves. And sometimes they may not be an opportunity that day. And you have to always be very vigilant in trying to open up opportunity, 
um, reaching out to individuals and seeing what you can do to uh, you know continue to, to have that financial stream keep coming through. Well, it just so happened that you know all my friends and family members went out by saying you should try this on your own. So back in 1998, uh, January 1st is when we opened up the doors to SW Unlimited. And primarily what we did in the beginning where we were just doing brokering of computer, uh, like I, I was a computer broker. So I would call, you know, the end user who had a bunch of equipment. And then I would also call all my various contacts that I had made since 1989 until present that I would be able to call on these guys and say, hey, you know what? I've got X, Y, Z available. What would you offer for this? And that it was a very, very successful piece. And I started, and especially when I told them that I'm working for myself now, opportunity just kept coming in my direction, which was great. Then I thought, well, you know, I would not have been able to even get to this point in my life or this stage in my life if it wasn't for adaptive technology. What do I mean by that? Well, um, there is a program called JAWS, Job Access with Speech. And that was what we used on the computer back then. Before then, I was using, you know, everybody was using um, a DOS-based computer. And I used something called Vert Plus, which was a board that went into the computer that they plugged in. And then you plug this box into it, and that's what gave us speech output. So that's what I was using for the lengthiest period of time. And then after when I found out about this JAWS software, and I don't need to have this external box and it would be able to make the speakers on the, on the computer speak as well and that kind of thing, it was absolutely a, 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 break, a huge breakthrough. And I learned how to use JAWS. There was another product called Kurzweil for scanning. And there was also something called Open Book also for scanning and that kind of thing, working with email being able to then type an email, sending it out, having it come back and having it read through this speech synthesis. I was like, whoa, this is absolutely awesome. And I think that more and more individuals that may not be aware of this equipment, they need to know what's out here. They need to know how they can be as independent and go after opportunity if they have the right tools and the appropriate training they can just the sky's the limit. They can open up opportunities for themselves. So that's when I said, okay, you know what? I'm brokering and doing this computer stuff, but I want to get more involved in being able to sell adaptive technology. So hence, that's what I kind of migrated from brokering to then selling adaptive technology. And the beauty of that was people then knew of me in the state of New Jersey. And I had several companies approach me, uh, one being uh, Freedom Scientific, which is now called Vespero. Um, in 2006, I believe, 2007, I received a call from the regional manager of uh, this company. And he said, look, we, we heard some really good things about you. We're trying to see if you may have an interest in representing us in the state of New Jersey. And I'm like, wow, what does that kind of thing happen when somebody would call you from a corporation and said that they are aware of you and they'd like to partner up and work with you? Um, and, and, and they came and he sat with me and there was the um, VP of sales that came as well, too. And they sat right here in my house and they talked to me about me representing those products. 
And obviously I said yes, because I know that they're one of the, they are the leaders when it comes to adaptive technology in a whole entire world. So that was a huge, you know, a huge step for me to be noticed by these guys and saying that they would be interested in having me represent them. And also a number of years later, uh, HIMS, um, which is another uh, adaptive technology company, um, came over and asked if I would be able to represent some of their products in the state of New Jersey as well. And various other companies uh, that we were able to go after and see if they had some viable equipment that would really work well. And I would be able to represent those products here in the state of New Jersey. So that's how we kind of shifted and changed and we, we, we kind of really evolved from just doing this brokering thing of computer components, parts, peripherals to now working in the adaptive technology field and going out and talking to, you know, various clients at their home, bringing the equipment to them, showing them how well it would work for them, as well as talking to various schools, working with the NJ uh, Commission for the Blind and, and offering out these services as well, and bringing them any new technology that we feel it would be a benefit to their clients. So that's how that all stuff all evolved. Okay, wow. Oh, so I, I didn't know that there was anything before Jaws. <laughs> oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, probably before your time, but yeah, Jaws, Jaws is definitely the go-to software, I think, for for most people. Any any PC user, I believe, is going to be using Jaws if they're using some type of screen reading technology. Yeah, um, either Jaws or it could be NVDA. Um, right now, even Microsoft is is building in a speech component in their products or their software as well. Um, and they have also magnification. And it wasn't all that great in the very, very, very beginning. But now with some of these other pieces of Windows Narrator and Windows Magnifier, whatever the case, they're becoming pretty good. But no, no one can touch JAWS. JAWS, for any blind person that's going to be engaged in business, or if they're going to be in uh, any type of professional environment or field, that is the go-to software. The great piece about JAWS is every month they come up with some kind of an upgrade to the software. So if you're current with whatever your latest build of the software, you're always gonna get um, the patches or if they find that there is an issue with something. So I guess because folks are starting to use, I mean, a lot of people are aware obviously of, of, of Apple and um, the iOS platform as well. Everybody now uh, has built-in technology right there from the get-go. But this is why I'm saying these types of tools, if placed in the right hands and being able to utilize them, it is a game changer. It is truly a game changer. Can you tell me about any challenges that you had and if you had any mentors that helped you get through those challenges throughout your career? Yeah, man. If you're talking about challenges, uh, I, one of the challenges I did have, I remember freshman year in college, and um, it was the challenge of making sure that individuals knew, um, you know, not your perception, but sometimes the correct perception. Typical example, one of the first classes that courses that I had was a course on basic programming. And Professor Guy was a nice guy. Um, I went up, I told you at the beginning of the class, explained to him what 
my situation was and get some assistance. And, you know, it was kind of a daunting thing because we're in a classroom and we're working on a lot of equations and formulas and doing all types of different things that we need to do for writing strings of programs. And whatever he was explaining, I was really truly having a difficult time to track because whatever I recorded, I went back to my dorm room and I pushed play and I'm getting the same information, which is nothing. So I went to him one day after class and I said, uh, Professor such and such, would you, uh, do you think you might be able to be a little bit more, uh, you know, descriptive? So I would know. Then the guy says to me, look, this is how I've been teaching my whole career. And I truly don't believe that I can do anything better than I'm doing right now. So now it's just like, wait a minute, I do need this course. I mean, this is going to be a part of what my future will be. And basic is the first place we need to start. Um, so I was really concerned about this. Uh, and obviously I'm not going to get as much out of this course than all the other classmates are getting out of the course. So I went and talked to the Dean of students and I explained to him what was going on. And he said, uh, Sherlock, look, I want you to go back, um, to the class and I want you just to, you know, just hang in there for a little while longer. And I just want to have you come back and, and let me know after a couple of weeks, how things are going. Well, I figured the longer you wait, right? You can't add drop, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so I'm just thinking, okay, this is what I got to do. This is what I got to do. So I'm going back to the class. And I'm, of course, this is the second day that I'm back. And he's doing the same nonsense. And then the, the third time I go back to the classroom, boom. He's telling me, describing the colors, the tie, what he's got going on. He's being very descriptive of the person that's telling me what this equation is to where it's going and to the left and the right, up and down. I'm hearing everything now. And... It was truly because of me going and, and advocating for myself with the dean of students. Dean Mayo at the time says, you know, let me let me work on this. You go do your thing and let's see what we can put together. And that was that was truly awesome. But there are a lot of folks that I have. I have a gentleman that um, that I go to. His name is Titus Massey, a good friend of mine, really dear friend. And I've known him since he was a camp counselor and I was a camper. Uh, so he's like three, four, four years older than me. And he was going to Rutgers. Uh, I remember when he signed up, but then after he was getting his master's, I always kept in touch with him and always seeing where he was and whatever he was doing and always being able to be able to play off of someone or saying, hey, how would you handle this situation? What would you do if you were me? And it's great to have people like that in your life that you can reach out to, to kind of, you know, feed stuff or feed off of, or to um, throw some ideas out there to try to overcome some of the obstacles in which you have to face. So when you mentioned that, you know, there are programs out there or, you know, making acquaintances with individuals that may be in the same field that we're in, that have been in it longer than we have, obviously they had to go through the same hurdles that we're going through and they got past it. I'm very fortunate and blessed because I work uh, in a program called EDGE. It stands for Employment Development, important uh, no, Guidance, Development and Engagement. Uh, so with EDGE, um, we work with high school students from the age of 14, it can be all the way up to 20, 21, as long as they're in high school. And we share with these young people some of the uh, you know, antidotes of life, right? Because we're a lot older, we're older than them. But the key, most important piece about this program is we were there 
then. They're going through it now. We know exactly how they feel, and we're better able to connect and to win the trust and the guidance for these young people and to get them to get outside their cells or to, to be more uh, of an advocate for themselves or to work with them on, you know what, the cane is not such a, a horrible thing, especially if you share a story as to what this cane meant to you. It's going to be the same thing that cane means to them because they're going through that 14-year-old to 60, 18-year-old high school stage. And they know what it's like to, you know, trying to fit in or maybe they're trying to fit in and they're not doing such a great job. And, you know, they, but when they come together, they're all in one place a couple times a month when we used to meet in person, but now we have to do it over Zoom. But we're able to share similar stories and that really helps people moving forward. So we're all a mentor in life. You're a mentor. I'm a mentor. Someone's a mentee and then they become a mentor because they've gone through or they may have a friend um, that's on the same level with them, but maybe they're taking things a little bit differently. And because they're friends with someone else, by having that relationship and that friendship, you know, friends kind of take advice from other friends, right? So sure. it kind of helps these guys out as well, too. It's huge. It's huge. And that's why these programs are more needed than, than ever before. And I think that I'm very pleased and blessed to have been doing this since 2000. 2001 to today is being a mentor for for young people and that's what we've got to do that's how we give back that's how we help them let's switch topics a little bit what uh what are you what are you doing for fun during uh or i guess what kind of hobbies do you have and what are you doing for fun these days well i'm a big uh avid you know bard book user um also audible anything that i have to basically you know, transplant me and bring me into a story or, or bring me to a different part of the world or whatever the case is, just love books. I like to go fishing as well, too. If I get the opportunity, I get some folks to, together. We like to go either deep sea fishing or freshwater fishing. I love that. Um, love getting the opportunity to go out and, 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 you know, meet with people, hanging out with friends, going out, having dinner or um, maybe if it's to go out, uh, you know, now things are a little bit different. You can't really just jump out there and head out to a concert um, until things change up a little bit in the environment. But these are all the things that I definitely absolutely enjoy. But one of the things that I've been doing since very, very young is engaged in sports. And as I mentioned earlier concerning, you know, what we put on that resume, a member of USABA, United States Association for Blind Athletes, or ABA and J Association for Blind Athletes of New Jersey, I uh, first got my, uh, like I said, the, my, my, my first opportunity, I went to a camp up in Rockaway, New Jersey, called Camp Marcella. And this camp, they used to always have these different, um, uh, I guess, games that they would play with us as kids and one of the things that they would do is they say you know what we're going to have a competition for superboy and supergirl and we're going to basically test you guys and all of your abilities and your skills to be able to to get this a title and it would be like how many push-ups can you do how many chin-ups can you do all right uh, how fast can you run uh, you know, uh, how can you do this? Can, so all these different things that we, we were able and capable of doing. Then I found out that I was really very good, very fast when it came to running. 
And that's when I was exposed or introduced to doing the high jump as well. And I just kept on, you know, focus on this. And not only did I get, you know, engaged with the ABA, which is on a state level. Then from there, they said, you know what, Sherlock, we are going to take a team of athletes from New Jersey and we're going to bring them on a national level. So I used to get the opportunity to travel extensively all over the country, participating and competing with individuals like myself who are blind and visually impaired in all of these different, uh, you know, athletic events. If it was 100 meter, 200 meter, 400 meter, if it was a triple jump, uh, if it was uh, running long jump, if it was the high jump, uh, throwing the shot put, throwing the discus, javelin, whatever, I got quite a bit of exposure. And um, I was always the number one or number two guy in the whole entire country for all of those uh, sports in my vision class. Um, and back in 1990, I was given the opportunity. They had uh, gotten a chance to, um, to see me and, and they said, you know what, we want you to come with us um, to Assen, which is in Holland, to participate in the World Games. And we were going to bring you here for the high jump. So I went to Assen in Holland and I came in third in the world, the high jump. And after I did that, I said, you know what? I, I don't think I can jump any higher than I did. So I, I think that, you know, I can kind of rest on this right right now. And I need to find another challenge. And I was always participating in this sport called goalball. And um, we, as goalball players um, in the state of New Jersey, received the very, very first gold medal for that sport on a national level. Um to, uh, to, to, to represent, uh, you know, New Jersey. And we got the very, very first gold medal for the state of New Jersey. Never did any other team ever get a gold medal, maybe silver, bronze, whatever. Uh, but we were the very first ones. It was me and two other guys who were the first ones to do that for the state of New Jersey. I was very excited about that. Then after when we conquered that, then a friend of mine started playing a sport called beep baseball. I said, beep baseball? What the heck is that? He said, well, it's a game played with this ball that beeps and these bases that kind of buzz and everybody's on their sleep shades. And, you know, the pitcher and the catcher are sighted and they have two sighted spotters for the opposition that go out in the field. And, you know, they're going to give you, you know, a series of commands. And, you know, in baseball, there's three strikes. You guys get four strikes in this game. So it was like, um, here's what we do. You know, the pitcher would give us a cadence, ready, set ball, or ready, set pitch, and they would pitch the ball. And we would just have to swing the bat as hard as we could. And if we have a level, solid swing, it would hopefully intersect with that ball, and that ball would go flying out in the outfield. Now, there was only, in this sport, there's only two, three bases, home plate, first base, and third base. Now, with this, you never have to round the bases, right? So you start off at home plate. That's where you're batting from. The pitcher and the catcher are on your team. Harrison. So they want you to hit the ball. It's not like, you know, in the opposing stuff when you know the regular baseball that the opposing pitcher and catcher came on and they want to strike you out. These people want to help you to make the connection with the ball. So the bases are set out about 100 feet from home plate. Normally in baseball, it's 90 feet, but in this sport, it's 100 feet. The bases are uh, a spongy, foamy type material. They're about uh, three, four feet tall and they have a speaker in them. And it's connected by a wire, and this wire has a control, 
and they could either set off one of the two bases to go off. And that's how the person who's batting knows what direction they need to run in. And this is great because you're doing this all independently of someone running with you, no sighted guide needed. It's just you, you're, you're, you're beating the clock, trying to get to that base before those outfielders pick up that ball. So it's not like they're going to throw the ball to a base to throw you out. They need just to grab the ball as it's hit to them, pick it up in the air, and if they get that ball picked up in the air and have full control before you get to the base, well, you're out. But if you get to the base before they have full control of the ball, and if you touch the base with any part of your body, it counts as a run. So after I got involved and there was a organization that was out in Chicago called the Chicago Fastar. Um, and they asked me to come and it was uh, July or August of, no, it was July of 1995. So 1995, I went to Denver, Colorado. It was my first exposure playing the sport. And as a rookie, did extremely well when they got the hang of this thing. And I've been playing ever since. Of course, this year was the one of the only years that I had not played in the last 20, 25 years of playing this sport. So um, that's how much enjoyment uh, people gain from, from participating and being active in this. And I remember you, when we started the New Jersey Lightning in 2010, you came out for a little while and, and worked with us for a little bit. And you were a darn good hitter as well as a runner as well too and uh you know you, you did do a nice job for us but i guess that uh, things got busy for you and and you decided to go after your career but you, you didn't come back to us but um we're, we're hoping that if you're you have an opportunity in future and you feel that the things are a little different and you wanted to come back you're always more than welcome because you were awesome thanks thanks i i i hope to one day you know, rejoin you guys. You know, I've got uh, a little one at home and, and another one on the way. Oh, look at that. Okay. Building <laughs> the family. Too busy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Good for you, man. Good for you. But Sherlock, thank you so much for taking this time to, to talk with me and share your story. It's, it's, it's been awesome. Well, it's uh, a pleasure. I mean, I gave you all the positive things as well, too, which, which we always want to feel positive. But I also want to make sure that everybody is aware of, really, that there are sometimes individuals that we have to um, change their mindset. And we are often called to sometimes, sometimes we don't think about what this is, but we are ambassadors to the blindness community. And anytime that we're out there, um, we're representing it, whether we like to know it or not. If you've got a cane or you're using a dog or whatever the case is, people will gravitate to you. They will be looking at you. So, so whatever you do, if somebody came over to you and said, hey, you know, can I help you or whatever the case is, we very courteously tell them, no, I'm fine. Things are good. And, and I greatly appreciate you offering to help. And sometimes we have to be uh, folks that do training for people too. We need to sometimes help them so they can guide someone the right way or tell them what the appropriate thing is to do um, to help us out as well, too. I think that's major, major, majorly important. Um, so please, if, if anybody out there um, is out there and uh, they're in the community, just remember that we do have sometimes a role that we need to play. And the best way that we can certainly do this is with uh, you know with confidence and pride and, and and we can advocate for ourselves and advocate for others 
and doing whatever we need to do to make this a better, better place in which we live. I hope we can all learn something from my conversation with Sherlock. I know for myself, I'm going to try to be as proficient in my career as possible. And in doing so, demonstrating the value that you can bring to your employer and to your customers will help you advance in your career more than just about anything else that you can do. I'm going to stay positive and advocate for myself and gravitate toward people that accept me for who I am. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and come back to hear more inspiring stories from other blind and visually impaired people. Thanks for listening.